Hello, and welcome to Talk Dana Osband here with my friend Aaron Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachad Moli Katsa, Gimel Page. Well, we're Parakam Moli Katan, which I feel like we just actually started the second Um, And there's three Mishnahs on this page. But before we get to the Mishnahs, there's one very interesting line here about a particular halakhic story, which I don't think we've seen too much about since we started our study of uh, Talmud Bakri. Discussion about sometimes, uh, let's say, penalties or financial penalties that sort of <coughs> started with a father and then the father died, they get incurred on the son. That's a much, much larger discussion. But one of the examples that it gives here is, is that a case of somebody who sold his slave to a non-Jew and then died, right? And the chacham, the basically <laughs> the son is basically after the father for having sell it because every day, right? This is exactly what the words Every day, basically the slave is in the non-Jew's possession. He is not doing mitzvot. He's, he's excluded from mitzvot. And so this is a very, very interesting category. So there are two types of slaves, basically, in halacha. There's the, uh, and we're going to be reading, we're recording this, we're going to be learning Parsha, reading Parsha Mishpatzim later, God willing. Um, but there's slaves and there's, you know, a Canaanite slave, a Canaanite slave. And even though a Canaanite slave is not Jewish, they were still obligated to perform when they were living in a home the same mitzvot as basically on the level as a Jewish woman, meaning they wouldn't do mitzvot grandma. So if a Jew were basically sell their non-Jewish slave, this Canaanite slave, to uh to another non-Jew, right? The um, you know, this the 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 issue is is that essentially um, you know, slave no longer is going to have the opportunity to basically uh, to basically do these uh, to do these meet to do these meets vote. Um, and the case that they're specifically talking about is it's sort of the owner secretly sold the slave to the non-Jew and then the, then the, the, and then basically the slave escapes and then the, 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 the seller, right? The person who originally owned the slave needs to basically compensate the non, the, the second owner, the non-Jew, um, and uh, and then the slave actually is considered to be free at this point. One of the things that it talks about here is this concept of is that the slave actually sort of is not allowed to do mitzvot. And I think this is a super fascinating concept, right? Non-Jewish slaves sort of to keep the integrity of a Jewish household were obligated uh, to keep some of the mitzvot. Um, and that when you would sell them, therefore, to a non-Jewish, uh, owner, they sort of don't have that opportunity to do mitzvot anymore. Now, I'm not going to get into, obviously, the issue, the concept of slavery and what slavery was in Judaism. I think that's a whole topic unto itself. But I just think this concept in the Gemara, right, that it's really saying sort of that, like, that's sort of this, once the, the, non, the Canaanite slave is now in a non-Jew's possession, they're not allowed to do mitzvot anymore. I think tells us something very interesting about the institution of slavery and how it was actually practiced.
So I think it tells us something interesting about the institution of Chazal, namely Chazal pull no punches, right? Like Judaism is the way to go if you're Jewish. And if you're an Evid Knani who has signed on to be with the Jewish people to this degree, right? And mitzvot are a good thing. And the more the merrier, the better you're off, the more mitzvot you do, right? Like there's no equivocating here from Chazal. Like they don't, they don't say, well, if you have the opportunity to do mitzvot, that's a nice thing, right? Like, no, stay with the Jew because you're going to get to do more mitzvot. Right, exactly. That I think that's really interesting. And again, I'm not going to comment on, I think the whole topic of slavery and Judaism is interesting. And, you know, for another time, and hopefully we'll have a chance to explore that at some other point, uh, probably that will come in the bubbles at some point, uh, you know, in Dafyomi. But again, just to recognize exactly, as you said, Anne, sort of this was used as an opportunity to say, okay, you're going to live with a Jewish family. You now get an opportunity to meet folks. Okay, I'm going to now pick this up and go. We've got two Mishnayot here. I'm sorry. There's three Mishnayot. I'm going to do the two middle, and then you're Dana, you'll pick up the end, like an ABBA of the day. So this is interesting. You cannot buy, you cannot purchase houses or slaves or animals, cattle really, meaning it doesn't mean you can't go buy a puppy, unless it's for the needs of the holiday itself. Or for the sake, and this is, I think, very interesting, for the sake of providing funds for the seller who doesn't have anything to eat, meaning where your purchase at that time is a kindness to the seller, as opposed to saying, but I am going to miss out on this wonderful cow, or I'm going to miss out on this real estate opportunity. According to the Mishnah, I'm not sure the practicing I'm not sure that would be true, but in this case, it says you cannot... Do it unless it's for the sake of the holiday or to help out the seller himself. So now, by me, Rav Ami Rav Nachman, Rav asks Rav Nachman, um, What are the wages for the worker who doesn't have anything to eat? Meaning, how do you evaluate that? Right? Can you provide that person with work, let's say, on Cholamoid? Because he doesn't have anything to eat. Like, can you, can you concoct it? Right? Can you come up with a way to provide for this person? But isn't that person not supposed to be working on Cholamoid? Except for the answer is, but he has to eat. Rav Nachman says, but we know this from the Mishnah, right? That you could provide for the seller if he has nothing to eat. So the Gemara continues, What do we gain from the fact that there's the Mishnah itself says that he has nothing to eat? Isn't that the point of saying, that it's going to include the wages, right? If it's not just that he's selling stuff, but so hire him instead. What what difference does it really make there? No, it means we're explaining what it means to have the, that need by the point of the seller. It's not really deliberating what could you do for the guy. It doesn't mean, well, you could either provide him with food um, or you could provide him with a job, or you could pro- provide him with, you know, make purchase stuff from him so that he'll have the funds. Now Abai asks, a comp- um, so let me say, that that piece, that Rav and Rav Nachman discussion kind of is closed at that, right? Like, you're allowed to do this, and that's that's it. Now Abai has got another question on the Mishnah. Abai. Sorry. 
Ein kotvin shitrechov b'moed. You're not supposed to write the documentation that is uh, a chov, that is an IOU, but a formal IOU, a promissory note, on the holiday. But what happens if the lender doesn't trust the borrower and he's concerned that he won't even be able to come collect, you know, collect on the loan? And then again, alternatively, it says again, or if he has nothing to eat. What was the Masachah? There was a different Masachah where we talked about this, that there is a lot greater, a greater sense of poverty where just the basics of what you're going to eat has a much more prominent thread throughout Shas, I think, than we might have other, otherwise predicted. Um, so in any case, the point is that then you could, then under those circumstances, if you're worried that you're not going to be able to collect your loan, or alternatively, you know, the guy doesn't have anything to eat, then you could write the promissory note. So again, why does it say if he has nothing to eat? What do you need? Why does the text have to add that in? Won't that include um, the idea that you could pay the wages of the scribe? Right? Isn't that the point? The, the money for the action. So include from it that really you could hire the worker who needs that livelihood even for work, and this is key, even for work that would otherwise be prohibited on Cholmoid, meaning you would not be writing promissory notes in general on Cholmoid. But if hiring the scribe to do so on Cholmoid provides that guy with an with a income that he will then be able to, you know, to function, to fund his, literally to eat, then, then you're allowed. So I feel like there's, Again, we enter this kind of ambiguous zone of what's allowed and what's not allowed or what mitigating factors might allow you to do something on Cholamoid that would never really be considered as possible mitigating factors on Shabbos or Yontif, right? Yontif, you encounter somebody who doesn't have something to eat. Give them something to eat, right? But on Cholamoid, you can hire them or you can purchase from them and do things that you wouldn't do on Cholamoid were it not for this you know, need on their on the other person's behalf uh, to make sure that you do it. I would say it doesn't say it in these ways, in these words, but in a in a mechubad, in a dignified way, right? You're preserving the dignity of the person who is so hard up that without this transaction, they're going to go hungry. Well, I think what it's acknowledging here is that there are going to be people who won't have the means to just not work for a full week. And so therefore they have to give some allowance for, the, for those people, like there's going to be a segment of society that we are still going to need to support and allow to work during Cholamoid. We can't shut down the entire economy. Right. And I would note that it's also an economy that was much more hand to mouth, literally. Right. Nowadays, even for the people who are working hourly, let's say, more often than not, you get paid weekly or monthly. Right. You collect your paycheck, not by the hour or not by the day not nobody some people get paid by the day but for, but there's a much more of a an expectation that there's a, a structure to the when is payday and this suggests that we're talking about somebody who's literally paid on the spot for the action done and that's it and, and without it then he's in trouble okay moving on to the next mishnah so you can't move your stuff meaning the contents of your house from house to house during Cholamoid, meaning don't move, don't don't move house. But you can move them from your house to the courtyard if that were necessary. So of course, it's an interesting question to think what would make it necessary to move your stuff for, to the courtyard. 
And the point here is there's a big difference, right, between moving house, like the action of moving house, than simply the physical moving of one item to the next. And I think that's the point. Like, if you need to move your stuff to the courtyard, so do it. You know, that you've got a, a, I don't know, a leak a, or you want to rearrange your furniture. I don't know how far that would go. But the idea, that's really a very different thing. It's, the point is, the prohibition isn't against the physical moving of your couch. It's about moving house, which is a whole different identity to the nature of the move itself. It's not just the physicality of it. You can't bring utensils home from the craftsman after he finishes them, right? Except that, but if you're worried about them, like you're concerned that they might be stolen while they're still in the craftsman's house, then you could move them home. You can move them, I'm sorry, not home, you can move them to somebody else's courtyard. Meaning you can take measures to do the physical moving for the sake of protecting the items, but don't bring these new items into your home on Cholamoid. It's considered, I don't know, not appropriate, right? And so this, I think, is an interesting conundrum also because what if you wanted them for Chag? And again, maybe there's leeway there. The Gemara goes on to ask, One second, says the Gemara. At the beginning of that Mishnah, it says you cannot move your stuff at all, even from one house to another. You buy it, buy it. So then how can it be that you can move to another courtyard at the end, right? How How is that allowed? Amar so Abai has some fancy footwork here to explain it. He says that at the in the end, when it says you can move it to the courtyard, we're talking about moving the house in his courtyard to the same courtyard, meaning it's the it's the case of a courtyard that has a house within the courtyard, which is the reason I call this fancy footwork is the way I understood it in, in a more simplistic level. Right, is simply that the idea is that you aren't messing with the rule of you not bringing it home. You're taking actions to protect your stuff, but you're also not bringing it into your house, which is a whole change of status or whatever. And here, Abai is speaking about the physical move. Right, He says that you can bring it, to bring it from the house in the courtyard to that same courtyard, you're allowed to be doing that. There's a leeway from courtyard, from moving from one courtyard to another, or from the craftsperson's house to another courtyard, or from your house to the courtyard, all of which is considered, I guess, not quite moving to the same degree. Um, and the Mishnah, I'm sorry, the Gemara goes on to talk about exactly this, this question of can you bring the utensils home or vessels, right, home from a craftsperson, and to what degree might you be able to? The question that is, you know, is it necessary for the, Holiday. The Gemara says specifically, There's a contradiction between the Mishnah and this and this statement um, that you can right you cannot bring things home. And then in Psachim Psachim Daf Nun Hey I'm a bet it says you can bring things home. So the answer is as follows: kan kan moed. The first case is the question of the 14th of Nisan, meaning there the the Mishnah says, um, I'm sorry, Cholamoid, don't bring stuff home. But if it's the 14th of Nisan, then you could, meaning if it's Erev Chag. But what about somebody, there's a, a view that says, no, no, they were both talking about Cholamoid, which makes sense if you want to claim there's a contradiction. 
kan mami no, kan no mami no. So then here, the difference then is going to be, because again, how do we resolve this, the contradiction, that one is where you trust the craftsman, so you can leave it in its place, and the other, you're allowed to bring it home because you don't trust the craftsman to begin with. Or perhaps the craftsman said it. Maybe it's not the craftsman himself. Um, okay. So again, I would say that there's the the question of what you can do on Cholamoid is adjusted by context in a really different kind of way, I would say, than, than anything we would think of for for Shabbat or for Chag. I think that's a really good summary. I mean, we're almost halfway done with this Masachet, and I think that's really the, what distinguishes it. If we consider, you know, Shabbat and Masachet Beitza, is that here the theme really seems to be context, right? We are going to allow some malacha, but the context is really sort of the driver or what is the most important factor in determining whether or not it's allowed, you know, as opposed to, you know, Shabbat and Beitza, where it's much more like, is this action a violation of a malacha? And that's not really the context here at all. Um, I'm going to move on to the last Mishnah here. So on Cholomoed, figs that you sort of laid out to dry can be covered with straw, um, basically to protect them from rain or, you know, or the dew. Rabbi Huda says you can even condense the figs. So they said those who sell, uh, you know, produce, clothing, or, you know, utensils can actually sell them in private for the sake of the festival. Because remember, at the end of Cholomoyed for Pesach and for Sukkot, you always have another day of Chag. So people may need things. They ran out of something, something got ruined, something got torn. So you can sell it, but you have to do it privately. Um, and also fishermen and groat makers and the pounders, this would be like bean pounders, also can do their trade in private. So in other words, if you needed certain types of food, and again, this makes sense because not only did people live in the economy, as we said before, very sort of day-to-day, but food was also much more day-to-day. Rabbi Yossi said they were stringent with themselves. In other words, that many of them still chose not to work. And the Gemara gives examples of different cities where it says, even though those things were allowed to be done, the people who did those particular trades actually didn't do them. I got excited about something else that was on this staff. Um, which is the following, Mekve. So the Gemara is going to, uh, is in the middle of a discussion about wheat, okay? Um, And uh, it's talking about this wheat called Chilka. Um, And so the question is sort of what is, uh, what is, uh, what exactly is, uh, what exactly is Chilka? And so it says here, let's say somebody um, basically says that he's not going to, eat grain anymore, okay? So he can't even take dry Egyptian beans, but he is permitted to take sort of, of like fresh beans, okay? And he is allowed to take rice and chilka and targis and, and titsni. So it makes sense to the person who says one grain is broken into two, one grain is broken into three, and one grain is broken into four, right? Um, that is 
you know, that's fine because when the wheat is sort of because when it's broken up in that way, it still is grain. But the person who says, and here we're talking about the chilka, we're talking about emmer wheat, right? That is still, it's still grain. Now, I don't know everything about all of this type of different types of wheat. What I got super excited about is, is that this staff talks about emmer wheat. And emmer wheat is basically, it's a type of, uh, it's a type of wheat um, that is, um, it's sort of called what we called like a a wild wheat. Um, And the idea here is that wild and domesticated wheat, it has to do with that when you, when the head, when the seed head of the wild plant, like basically breaks up and scatters, the seed onto the ground will, you know, the seed will go onto the ground. But if you have a domesticated wheat, okay, the seed basically, the seed head remains intact. And so it's easier for people to basically harvest the grain. Okay, that has to do with sort of like what wild wheat is and all this kind of thing. But emmer wheat in specific actually has a very interesting piece in Jewish, in Israeli history, um, because emmer wheat is actually, it's, it's found in what we call the Fertile Crescent, right? So you would see it anywhere from like Israel um, to Iran. And if anybody knows anything about Israeli history, there was a man named Aaron Aronson, who basically sort of rediscovered wild emmer wheat that was growing in Rosh Pina. Um, and it was like a big, big thing in the botanical world that they had finally find this emmer wheat and it was collected um, and it was like a big deal. So when I saw this on the Daf of the Gemara, I was very excited because I've, I've read about this before. Um, but I think also, you know, part of what they're talking about here in this particular Brisa, where they're talking about, you know, sort of the grain being broken up, that's also part of, I believe, the difference between wild and domesticated wheat, like what happens to the seed of the actual wheat itself. So I won't tell you everything about Aaron Aronson, but he's a very important Zionist figure. Um, he was born agronomy. in- Agronomy. That's how I learned the word agronomy. Right, he agronomy. Was yes, exactly. Um, he was born in, uh, in Romania and then eventually moved to Israel when it was under the, really Palestine, when it was under- the Ottoman uh, Empire. He lived from 1876 to 1919. He died under some mysterious circumstances in a plane crash and not clear if maybe the British uh, were um, uh, involved with that. So he's sort of an interesting person also because he was a very well-known botanist, but at the same time also sort of was very involved in sort of uh, pre-Israel activities. So that's all. I got excited when I saw this today on the dot. Um, I think also, you know, nowadays we have so many different kinds of foods from which, let's say, from which bread might be made, right, that are not necessarily the grains of of your. And I feel like this puts this emmer wheat exactly in this discussion of, well, isn't don't we really treat it like wheat or do we not always treat it like wheat? It, you know, as opposed to, I don't know what quinoa, right, that wasn't around back then. Or if it was, we didn't know about it. Right. I mean, I feel like quinoa only became a thing later in my life. Like, I didn't know about it before either. So it's interesting to see, though, exactly how they talk about these different types of wheat and what's really considered wheat or not considered wheat. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenant Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. (laughs) 